Well, thank you all for coming. It's very good of you to have given up a, a sunny evening in Oxford when you, you could be doing some much more interesting things, I'm sure. Um, it's my first visit to Keeble, and uh, I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to, um, to be part of this uh, series of talks that Tracy has put together, which look really interesting. I'm really envious of, of, um, of you know, the, the way that colleges can put on these kind of interdisciplinary series, something we don't really do in, in bigger universities. It has to be in a, in a college for some reason. Uh, th this light keeps going on and off. I'm not sure trying to save energy or something. <laughs> but if I'm plunged into darkness, I shall plough on regardless. Uh, could we have the next slide, please? Just yeah, thanks. Okay, well, the, certainly those of you who are Italianists uh, will, will recognise this, this figure, <laughs> Roberto Benigni. Um, this is a poster for a series of performances that he gave last summer in Piazza Santa Croce, in, in Florence. It's called the Tutto Dante Tour. Uh, and <laughs> it's one indication of um, the fact that oral culture, is, uh, the oralization of literature, is still very much alive and well in modern Italy. Um, this was at the more formal end of the scale of events. But if we uh, we're, we're all familiar with the other kind of uh, more informal event, uh, poetry readings or readings from novels that take place in bookshops, as this seems to be, or in libraries, uh, sometimes with the authors themselves reading from their works, um, sometimes professional actors, sometimes with uh, just uh, ordinary citizens reading. Uh, we're all familiar, of course, with the way in which uh, um, audio books and uh, uh, radio, uh, uh, these are other ways in which, the, uh, in which modern technology has uh, helped to maintain a tradition, a very long-standing tradition, of course, of uh, the oralization of literature. So what I'm going to try to do in this lecture is to look at the roots of these practices in the early modern period. I'm going to be focusing mainly on, on the 16th century. And my main question is how far we need to think of, of the possibility that some kinds of literary texts were performed um, either alongside some kind of written a circulation, which could be in manuscript or in print, or perhaps without any kind of written circulation. I'll be using the, the, the term performance quite a lot, so it might be a good idea to define that. I mean that texts were spoken or sung to one or more other people. So I think uh, I'm using performance if, even if it's just one person reading to another. I'm not, on the other hand, talking about people reading texts uh, out to themselves, which they, they may well have done on some occasions, in the context of prayer, for example. Um, and I'm going to be looking at quite a, a wide spectrum of, of, of occasions. Um, using the terms of Peter Burke, I'm going to be looking at the informal scenarios of everyday life, 
but I'll also be looking at more formal framed events um, that are deliberately set apart from everyday life. But whether these events were informal or formal, in some way they were social events. Um, they bring people together in some way. And I'll, I'll say something right at the end about what that might have meant for the, for the listeners. So my, my title, Oralising Literature, implies looking at how far the voice was used in circulating literature at the time. But I'm also uh, I'm hoping that the title gives an extra sense that we today need to give past orality its due, perhaps to restore an oral dimension um, to our modern conception of the circulation of literary texts in the early modern period. We obviously at the same time need to restore that dimension in the correct measure. We mustn't uh, exaggerate the role of orality and we must remain conscious of the problems of uh, reconstructing voices that are now, of course, lost. Something I need to talk about briefly as a preliminary is the extent of literacy in this period. In other words, we need to ask to what extent the reliance on hearing texts voiced, as opposed to reading them, uh, was a necessity rather than a choice. Now, the early modern period is marked by the introduction of the printing press and by the gradual expansion of literacy. And these two developments were linked um, because printing made books available in greater numbers and at a lower purchase price, and they, printing produced new kinds of texts that were accessible to readers who are less skilled. Now, the... Historians have suggested that in large cities in Italy, cities like Venice and Florence, probably about one male child in four attended school in the, in the Renaissance period, in the 16th century and the late 15th century. Uh, very few women, of course, very few girls attended school. However, some basic teaching of writing and reading also took place outside schools, above all in the household. And as a result, it, I think it's safe to say that members of the middle classes as well as of the upper classes would have had at least a basic ability to read. And yet, in Italy, and probably in Europe as a whole, there was also a substantial section of society that did not have this ability and that therefore had access to text only through the voice. So we have a complex situation marked in part by what Walter Ong called residual orality or oral residue. In other words, the relics of orality in societies where reading and writing are not widespread because access to education is limited. But I'm going to suggest that the use of orality was also voluntary. Practices and habits of oral culture persisted and indeed thrived also among the literate social elites. And moreover, some elements of oral culture were shared by all social classes. I, uh, Tracy has already mentioned the context in which I've been uh, working on this, together with a, a, a team of um, postdoctoral fellows. It's uh, 
a four-year project uh, which is generously financed by the European Research Council. I do recommend to you the applying to the European Research Council. Uh, much easier than applying to the HRC, I have to say. Uh, so I, I need very sincerely to, to express gratitude to the ERC for uh, facilitating uh, our research. Um, what the project is looking at is not just the use of the voice, but it's a re the relationship between the use of the voice and the use of writing. So, um, and we're using evidence such as um, letters, diaries, uh, uh, trials are, are useful sources of evidence. Trials, for instance, by the Holy Office, I'll be mentioning one or two of them in which people are uh, being accused of talking, uh, of, of uh, reading or talking about um, heretical uh, ideas. Uh, we're also looking at the texts themselves, because sometimes the texts have embedded within them references to performance. Um, so we're, we're looking at cases where the writing came first and one goes from writing to spoken or sung performance. We're looking at movement in the other direction, and I'll be mentioning uh, cases of that today, where uh, a text begins orally and only then um, it gets written down. We'll be looking, we're looking at kinds of uh, texts that were never written down, uh, that, that were simply performed and were lost, except in uh, some kind of mention of them. Um, one, I think, can also consider perform, uh, these kind of oral performances as part of a bigger uh, idea, the idea that one can also have performances of texts in writing in which uh, texts were, po say, posted in a particular place on a particular occasion, perhaps to, um, to accuse somebody of, of um, I don't know, it could be some uh, belonging to the wrong political faction or some some kind of misdemeanor in their private lives. That too, I suppose, is a kind of performance, although of a silent kind. Within, within the project, we're looking at various um, themes. We're looking at religion, we're looking at politics, we're looking at entertainments, both public and private. We're also uh, looking at the use of language uh, Italy, in this period, was even more linguistically divided than it, than it still is today. And an interesting question is that of uh, what languages performers used if they went from one region to another, and the extent to which people in one state could understand uh, a text that originated in, a, in another state. So language is, is also part of it. We are, we are looking at non-literary texts as well. So we're looking at things like sermons. Um, we're looking at political speeches. We're looking at prayers, um, academic uh, lectures. But today I'm going to focus simply on literary texts and I'm going to focus on the vernacular. I'm not going to be talking about the use of Latin. And I'm going to be looking at what kinds of works could be performed by what kinds of individuals, 
uh, where and when, on what kind of occasions, and also at how they might be performed. The first general point to make is that prose was read aloud much less than verse, and it was not set to music, with a few exceptions, such as psalms. Uh, but there were some contexts that favoured the reading aloud of prose in small groups or even to a single person. One context could be uh, when uh, a literate reader wanted to transmit a text to others who were less well educated. And we know of some examples from Holy Office trials of people reading aloud texts that were um, assumed to be heterodox or heretical. So one trial uh, in Venice in 1548 mentions a certain Franceschina, uh, the wife of a silk weaver, who was said to have had her husband's apprentice read to her and her husband from the Bible on Sunday mornings, presumably in a vernacular translation, which of course would have been inherently suspect to the holy office. It's quite possible that this lower class couple, Franceschina and her husband, were illiterate, but it could also be that they, pref they liked to share the experience of hearing the Bible read aloud to them. In the records of another trial from about 20 years later in Modena, um, we read about how a certain Pietro Antonio uh, testified that he read books in the vernacular to a group of soldiers, 18 of them, who guarded the city gates. And we also learn about how these books were lent to him by other members of his heterodox group. Modena was a, a centre of heterodoxy. So he, he testified, I also, uh, I'll read the English translation, I also used to read to the soldiers in this squad some vernacular books that I had that dealt with these errors and opinions, such as John Calvin, and he lists some others. Pier Giovanni, the cloth shearer, and Giovanni Graziani gave me only these three books to read to these soldiers, and they gave them only one at a time, wanting me to return one to them when I'd finished reading it. So he was loaned one book and had to give it back before he got the next one. A shop assistant of the same city, uh, Domenico Dalle Brocche, uh, denounced his employer for owning um, uh, prohibited books. And he claimed that this uh, um, employer sang his uh, texts by heart. Uh, he's so well read. Uh, Domenico said, that he knows them all by heart. And um, uh, when he works in this shop, um, he sings these works by heart all day long. We'll see um, quite often that the use of memory uh, is very important. And a lot of these texts that were oralized were, had been memorized. When the uh, Holy Office produced in 1580, sorry, 1598 an edict concerning prohibited books, it listed all the people uh, that the faithful should denounce as having anything to do with heretical works. And included in this list were people not just who produced written books or who sold or read written books, but people who, who listened to them as well. 
Now, we also know of instances where men and women whom we know to have been educated had texts read aloud to them. Um, around 1525, Agnolo Firenzuola, a Florentine author, uh, invited in his dedicatory letter to his patron, the Duchess of Camerino, invited her to read or to listen to someone else reading aloud the uh, manuscript of the work, a, a, dialogue, a series of dialogues called the Ragionamenti, that, she, that he was presenting to her. So he writes, So when sometimes you rest from your more important tasks, read them at your meal tables or listen to others reading them. Uh, the same author in, in a later work um, claims uh, that the Pope, uh, Clement VII, uh, enjoyed the sound of his own voice when reading another um, of his uh, Firenzuola's earlier works, uh, And Ragionamenti. So Firenzuola writes, The judicious ear of Pope Clement VII, in the presence of the foremost spirits of Italy, already stayed open for several hours to receive with great attention the sound that his own voice made while he read the discacciamento, that's uh, about the casting out of some letters of the, that's been added to the Italian alphabet. Uh, and also the first day of those ragionamenti, not without showing pleasure, nor, nor without praising me. Seems that these recitations could go on for quite a long time. We'll, we'll, we'll see an even longer one later. Uh, Pietro Aretino, um, no, probably the most notorious Italian author of the first half of the uh, Cinquecento, apart from Machiavelli, perhaps, I don't know, uh, gives an account in one of his letters of a reading aloud of a dialogue on love composed by Speroni Speroni in Venice in 1537. And Aretino depicts the act of listening to this text as simultaneously pleasurable and spellbinding. So a man called Grazia, with his graceful manner, he's punning a lot on the idea of grace, uh, has recited in my house most gracefully your dialogue, on whose harmony the chaste and learned ears of the good Fortunio and my own, whatever they're worth, hung transfixed for two consecutive days. So this dialogue was read, read aloud, apparently, for, for two days. In, this is in Venice. Uh, in 1544, we learn from a letter that on an occasion when the Duke of Florence, Cosimo I, was ill, uh, someone um, uh, called Stradino, who was a soldier and man of letters, um, read histories to the Duke to entertain him. Another uh, example from Florence from the end of the century concerns the wife of um, a Grand Duke of Florence, Christine of Lorraine, the wife of Ferdinando de' Medici. And he, he's dedicating to uh, her, um, he dedicated to her his discourses on, on Tacitus. And he, he tells us in the dedication that the work originated from him talking about Tacitus in the presence of Christine, who then asked him to write down his discourses. Uh, and we have a, the letter in which Christine writes to Ammirato to thank him for his dedication, and, and 
She says um, in, in her letter of thanks, we shall very soon uh, begin to have it read to us, hoping to derive from it the benefit of virtuous and just advice. So it seems that it was a kind of routine thing then for uh, a woman uh, and possibly a man, and obviously a woman in this case, but it could have been true of a man as well, to have a, a work read aloud to them. So, so far I've been uh, talking about prose, but oral performance is concerned above all works in verse, both narrative and lyric, and they included sung as well as spoken renderings. And on these occasions, texts would often have been performed with the use of a written source, manuscript or printed, but sometimes they were performed again from memory. And I think in the case of poetry, rhythm and rhyme would have assisted memorization. There was also, as we'll see, some degree of or they could be some degree of improvisation. Stories of, about the uh, Carolingian paladins would originally have been performed in courts, and we find the residue of these performances in the formulae of chivalric romances. So, Boyardo's Orlando Innamorato, dating from the end of the 15th century, begins with a formulaic address to a fictional, imagined audience of lords and knights gathering to listen uh, to um, the, his new compositions. And the author tells them to be quiet. Uh, Boyardo's poem uh, was continued by Ariosto in the Orlando Furioso. And Ariosto continues the, this fiction. He, he starts the poem by saying that he, he will sing of... Um, the, the deeds of, of, of he was thinking of women and, and the deeds of uh, his knights, and of course he's imitating the beginning of Virgil's Aeneid, Arma Virumque Cano. He tells his patron how the patron will hear about his one of his ancestors, who is one of the knights he's going to be writing about. At the same time, Ariosto reminds us that this is a fiction because he talks about his poem as a work of ink an opera d'inchiostro. So certainly one, one must be aware, of, uh, one must not take um, this kind of, uh, uh, these references to listening literally in all cases. However, in spite of the, uh, in spite of that word of caution, there were certainly some readings and singings of narrative poems, both in elite circles and in the piazza. Um, another example of reading in the context of illness is, comes from a letter from a relative of Isabella d'Este, Isabella d'Este, the Marchioness of Mantua. Uh, so uh, one, one of her relatives, Antonia del Balso, wrote to Isabella in 1510. Now, I Isabella lived in a neighbouring town, but she knew that uh, Isabella, Isabella's husband, the, the Marquis of Mantua, had a big collection of uh, chivalric romances, particularly um, some French ones as well as more recent Italian ones. So uh, Antonia writes uh, to Isabella um, and uh, asks for the loan of some books from her husband's collections to 
while away the time, really, during an illness. And she can't have been too ill, because um, two days later, on the 7th of March, she, she writes back, uh, or she writes again to Isabella to say, I, I have the French books, uh, and I have them read to me while I work. So she must have been doing perhaps needlework or some kind of work that she, um, enabled her to, to listen while she was um, doing whatever she was doing. Another example of, of reading in, in a court, it's a story told by Torquato Tasso about his less famous father, Bernardo Tasso, and he, he's talking about how Bernardo rewrote his chivalric romance, Amadigi. Uh, he starts off by obeying certain rules uh, of epic poetry. But on one, uh, he, he soon learned that this kind of structure did not hold an audience's attention. And Torquato Tasso talks about how he was reading some cantos of his to the prince. This is the, the prince of uh, Salerno, his master. And when he began to read, the rooms were full of gentlemen listening, but by the end, they'd all disappeared. So but Torquato goes on to say about how Bernardo had rewritten the poem to make it more, uh, to, to keep the attention of, of readers. Um, the performances of narrative verse also took place in public spaces uh, given by professionals, and these were certainly attended by people of all social classes, mainly men. Uh, the top audience, I think, is all male. Uh, the lower audience, though, does in that woodcut, uh, does include some females as well. The instrument I, uh, is something called the lira da braccio, which is a relative of the violin, although it did have a, an extra string that was acted as a kind of drone. And you can see that it, it's held uh, not right under the chin like a modern violin, but here, lower down, so that the performer could sing and bow his instrument at the same time. Um, the, the Venetian uh, patrician Marin Sanudo, who's famous for his very long uh, copious diary, um, tells about how in 1518 he went out into... Uh, Piazza San Marco, just outside the Ducal Palace, with a, a senior civil servant called uh, Gasparo um, de la Vedova. And he tells about how the two of them joined a group of people listening to a Florentine poet called uh, Cristofano, or Cristofano, nicknamed L'Altissimo, the, the highest one. Um, so... Sanuto writes about how this Florentine poet came to this city at the Ascension. There was a big uh, fair in Venice at the Ascension. Um, and he was called the Altissimo. He got up on a chair, gathering together a large number of listeners, among whom I, Marin Sanudo, went with Gasparo de la Vedova. Uh, to, uh, he recites verses extempore. One person plays the lira while he recites him. So here we have a duo, one person playing, the other person singing. Sanudo is a bit sceptical about how extempore it was. He, he, he makes a comment about how 
he sang rather well, and so he thought it wasn't completely uh, um, uh, extemporized. Um, the, the Christ, this uh, Cristoforo could uh, sing uh, about the paladins of old. He, he could also sing about, uh, as other uh, street performers did, sing about recent events. These were kind of news bulletins, these poems. Uh, and w- w- in this case, we have a work about the La Rota di Ravenna, the route of the French army in uh, Ravenna, or near Ravenna in 1512. Uh, driven out of Italy by the army of the Holy League. Uh, and the, on the left you have the, the first page of the book, which was printed a few years um, later. We, we, it doesn't, it's not actually dated. Um, and the, the title tells us that it was Cantata in San Martino in Fiorenza. This is a little... Piazza, outside the church of San Martino, it's near the uh, Piazza della Signoria in, in the centre of uh, Florence, and it, it was a well-known venue for street entertainers. Uh, and it, the, the title goes on to say that it was copied, copiata dalla viva voce di varie persone mentre cantava. It was copied by various uh, by, well, from his living voice by various people while he was singing. And w- we know that sermons were, co- were copied down while preachers were giving sermons. I think a certain amount of reconstruction also took place from the memory of uh, uh, those who, who, who'd heard a performance. And in fact, the, on the right, the, the last, um, you've got the last page, and at the end, you've got the colophon, um, which explains why you've only got a half stanza at the end. The poem is actually incomplete. Uh, you've got four lines instead of the normal eight lines for the last stanza. And the colophon says, note that here some stanzas are missing. That is the end. Because the be- poet became so exalted, um, ven in tanto spirito, at the last, that the pen or the memory of whoever was taking it down from his voice could not follow him. Um, another thing that uh, itinerant performers did was to have copies uh, of their text printed and they would sell them afterwards. A bit like nowadays, you might buy a CD perhaps. Uh, at the end of a recital or something, these performers would would sell copies of the poems they just recited. Here's an extract from a Venetian uh, diary of uh, um, from 1509, in which the the diarist, who's a Venetian aristocrat, uh, laments that throughout Italy, street performers. He's using the term charlatans, which was often used to refer to really any kind of street performer, um, were singing and selling in the public squares poems about a recent disastrous uh, Venetian naval defeat on the River Po. um, So he writes about how in all the squares of all the cities of Italy, the usual charlatans were singing and selling poems about how the Venetian navy on the River Po had been overwhelmed by the Duke of Ferrara. So in this case, orality and print were 
intertwined. One important question that's raised by this kind of performance, particularly when it involves itinerant performance like Christophorus, what kind of language or languages were used uh, before people whose first language would have been what one would now call one of the dialects of Italy? Just to give an idea of the, the kind of variety of language that might be heard, um, we can use the, the, the chapter in Tommaso Gorzoni's book about all the professions of the world, um, the chapter on charlatans, or he actually calls it charlatans and street singers, cantimbanchi. Uh, uh, on the left, incidentally, you can see the uh, very well-known uh, engraving of charlatans in uh, San Marco, in Piazza San Marco, actually in Piazzetta San Marco, um, from the early 17th century. And you can see these groups of performers, some on stages, some on, on, on the paving stones, and uh, groups of people clustering around them. So... Uh, Garzoni lists um, in this imaginary scene that he's painting of a, of a piazza, he lists people that clearly come from different parts of Italy, or at least using the languages of different parts of Italy. So you've got somebody using Bolognese pronunciation, um, you've got a Tuscan, or somebody known as Il Toscano, using, I think, high flown, uh, sort of hyper literary. Florentine language, somebody from Milan, somebody from Forlì, uh, a blind performer, il cieco, and these uh, improvisers were, were, were often blind. Uh, somebody from Mantua, somebody from Naples, somebody from Arezzo in Tuscany, somebody from Parma in, in Lombardy. Now the, the narrative text, such as La Rota di Ravenna we saw earlier, and normally used a language based on literary Tuscan. And performances of these texts would have spread quite widely a knowledge, at least a passive knowledge, of what we would now call Italian. Um, there are some testimonies that even the uneducated lower classes uh, picked up and sang short extracts from uh, romances. Um, we have an example here from the early... 18th century from Joseph Addison, who talks about a custom in Venice um, of singing stanzas out of Tasso. This must be the Gerusalemme Liberata, um, in which the this would be a, just a few stanzas, not obviously not the not, not a whole canto. Um, they're set to music. One person t uh, starts singing, and then the song is taken up by others, so that gradually, he says, you have ten or a dozen in the neighbourhood, taking verse after verse. And again, the use of memory is, is important here. Uh, performances of lyric verse uh, were different in nature, because these tended to take place in private spaces, um, as illustrated in uh, that lovely... Uh, picture from the National Gallery. And these were often performed by non-professionals, although of course they could be given by professionals as well. Um, 
The best known types of performance were the sung settings of uh, lyric verse um, that became very common during the Cinquecento and uh, generated, spawned a whole uh, set of printed editions. People were experimenting with new ways of printing. So you have Ottaviano Petrucci, who has a two-phase kind of printing. He prints the staves and then the notes over the stage. And then later on in the series, a new, entirely new technique develops. But the, I chose this slide because it illustrates <coughs> the way in which really any, any poem set to a standard form could have been performed. Uh, this, in this case, um, you have a setting of a particular sonnet, which anonymous as often these uh, settings were, but at the top it says personetti, four sonnets. So I think the idea would be that that uh, setting could be adapted um, for, other, for other sonnets. You would probably have to change the note values a bit. But um, the, um, certainly any, any sonnet, any canzone, uh, would, any, anything in terza rima uh, was settable. Um, the skill of performance was encouraged in the upper classes. So Castiglione, for example, in the Book of the Courtier, uh, recommends that his noble courtier, male courtier, should be able to sing verse to what he calls the viola, which is a very vague term. Um, and he talks about how much beauty and effectiveness this adds to the words. However, um, although certainly the upper classes had music or were encouraged to have musical skills, um, the social elite had to be very careful that their performances should be kept separate from those of the lower social classes. Um, it's quite notable, I think, that while composers were very keen to get their hands on the latest poetry and, uh, and set, set, set it, um, the poets themselves uh, don't seem to have... Um, they, poets seem to have kept themselves at arm's length from the process of having their music set. I think one of the factors here that musicians were considered to be of a relatively low social rank, at least in, in some cases... For, for example, the, um, the best-known lyric poet of the first half of the uh, <coughs> 16th century in Italy, Pietro Bembo, seems to have had nothing to do with settings of his verse. And what one of his poems uh, that was set to verse was this uh, sequence of 50 stanzas on, on love, um, which was printed in Venice in 15, uh, 1545, but uh, this had nothing to do with, with Bembo himself. However, I think as the century went on, and as we get to the second half of the 16th century, poets begin not to collaborate directly with uh, musicians. I don't think one can go quite that far, as far as I'm aware, uh, but at least to show a positive appreciation of the work of contemporary composers and of the singers who were performing their verse. 
So an example is Torquato Tasso, mentioned earlier. Um, he, we know from his writing, um, uh, paid at least lip service to the, the value that um, music adds to verse. And uh, he, he did become connected with musicians and singers in the context of the uh, court of the Duke uh, of Ferrara, Alfonso II. Uh, Tasso's verse mentions uh, performers, the, in particular this group uh, of performers called the Concerto delle Dame. Uh, one of his mandrigals is addressed to a musician, probably Jacques de Vert, uh, who was the maestro di cappella in Mantua and had set some of his poems. And Tasso writes in this poem about how his verse was honoured in your voice and that of others. One of the, the members of the Concerto delle Dame was a singer called Anna Guarini. Now, she was the daughter of the poet Battista Guarini, you can see him on the top there, uh, and, her, uh, and daughter of a singer. Uh, and so it's not surprising that the Duke of Ferrara asked Battista Guarini to write poetry for music, to be set by the composer Luzasco Luzaski, who you can see below. <coughs> now, again, there was not a direct collaboration for reasons of tact and, um, I suppose, uh, Guarini wanted to leave the initiative with the patron, with the Duke. So he sends the uh, poem to Alfonso, to the Duke, um, and using him as an intermediary. Um, he sent to the Duke a madrigal on the bass voice of a singer called Brancaccio and also a short poem, a ballatella, that he says, my wish desired Messer Lusaski to set to music, but I did not want it, him to set about it until you see whether it is suitable for the dame. So the initiative remained with the patron. And ten days later, um, uh, sorry, you need to go back there. Uh, even further back, that's it. So the lower quotation. The um, Guarini sends to the, the Duke uh, a short poem uh, in which he, he set a challenge for the composer. He says, I'm describing the trills and the rising and falling ornaments and the tangles that are made in music. And in fact, a, a feature of some of the poetry of this period by people like Tasso and Guarini is a, a sort of aural clues, or references to a turtle dove or a nightingale or an echo, uh, th things that would, um, could spark the, um, the composer to, to mimic in sound what the, the words are saying. So we do have not quite direct collaboration between poets and, uh, and composers at this period, but w w there's certainly I think, a kind of rapprochement between them. Uh, finally, I, I want to say something about recitation. Um, there were a number of situations in which poetry, lyric poetry, could be recited without the use of uh, music. So we, we have the case of the well-known author Jacopo Salazzaro, who uh, recited a couple of his poems to the King of Naples, 
he, he turns up, uh, according to a letter, um, the, the, the letter writer and the king are talking, Sanatsaro arrives, and the king makes him recite two sonnets and an epigram, clearly from memory, unless Sanatsaro happened to have them in his pocket, which seems unlikely. Um, we also have cases, though, where it seems evident that the poet does have the text with him, but rather than giving the text on a piece of paper to the other person, uh, the poet reads it aloud. So uh, another letter from um, 1536, you've got Niccolo Franco writing to Venetian Domenico Venier, asking for a written copy of a poem that he had heard him recite earlier. We also get references to uh, poems being read more than once. There was a sense that a kind of repeat listening could add value each time. So there's a, a letter in which Aretino um, talks about how somebody called Alessandro, and we don't know who he is, um, had um, read a, a sonnet of his three times to a lady called Isabetta Massolo. Um, Aretino writes, I'm not surprised that Isabetta Massolo made you recite so many times the sonnet recently born of my heart, since on the first occasion one listens to a work. On the second, one relishes it. On the third, one judges it. Somebody... Uh, mentioned to me a, a scene from Le Misanthrope by uh, Moliere, obviously, and um, obviously from a, a later period in which uh, you get this uh, sense also of, um, a, well, you've got somebody re reading aloud a sonnet uh, and they're getting a very harsh critical reaction. Um, I think there is, there is a strong sense in these accounts of recitation that these are done for the purposes of feedback very often. The, you're expected to say something about the poem. Of course, it all goes wrong in Le Misanthrope, and um, the, the, poet, the poet gets a very harsh critique, um, as, as well as flattery from another character. Um, enter uh, entertainments could comprise poetic recitations. There's um, a, a letter, I won't read it all, but... Um, it's an account of a dinner uh, in, um, in Ferrara, uh, at which the very famous poet, I mean, she was famous even then, Vittoria Colonna was present. Uh, and there was a nice dinner party with the Duke of Ferrara, um, his, uh, the Duke's aunt, who's Isabella d'Este, and uh, a cardinal, and, and the courtier who is writing this account. And the, the entertainment after dinner consisted of the reading aloud of five sonnets by Vittoria Colonna. I assume she read them herself, although it's not quite spelt out that she read them. Um, and, but then there's a whole ragbag of entertainments. You've got um, ladies-in-waiting appearing. Uh, An Anna, who is the daughter of the Duke and is only six years old, uh, plays some pieces on the harpsichord. Um, and then you've got two of the dwarves of Isabella d'Este, Morgantini and Delia. She took her dwarves around with her, as you do, uh, and got them to do 
marvelous things with their little bodies. <laughs> Some kind of acrobatics, I presume. Um, so if we go on to the next quotation, we, we, we can see that clearly you could go too far. You, you could get a reputation for over-reciting. And there's a, a, a nice poem in Venetian dialect by another of the Venieres, Matteo Venier, um, who's, he reels off a whole string of curses. Uh, it starts off with the curse, um, may you have a father who never dies, so that you never get your inheritance. And as you go on, another of the curses, uh, you know, this would be coming across certain kinds of poets who always want to recite their sonnets. Um, there are accounts of entertainments in, in Siena. There's a dialogue on games in Siena. And there are a number of the games include the use of verse. Now, they don't include reciting whole poems, but people must, have, must be able to quote lines of poetry. For example, there's a, one called the Game of Versification, in which somebody gives a, a kind of coded message to another member of, of the party by reciting a line of verse. And then the other member must quote a line of verse back um, in order to respond in, in some way to the, um, to the first message. Academies um, had rules uh, to say that the members should read aloud their compositions. There was a process of censorship um, before this happened. But just to take one example, the, um, the Academy of the Eteri in, in Padua um, had this process of, of reading poems aloud. Uh, John Milton, no less, uh, tells about when he visited Italy in, the, in 1638, read some, as he said, some trifles that I had in memory, composed at under 20 or thereabouts. Uh, and he read these aloud in, um, in the private academies of Italy, as he says. They may, he doesn't say which compositions. They could have been Italian sonnets. They could have been Latin compositions, possibly even Greek ones. A couple more illustrations um, of public uh, occasions on which recitation took place. Here is a, a, a printing of a canzone by a man called Maganza, which was recited on a military occasion. A standard was presented to the Venetian captain. Uh, the, uh, he was an aristocrat who'd been captain of the city of Padua for two years. He was ending his term of office. And this canzone was read aloud, praising the uh, man in, in question, one of, the, one of the Barbarigo families. A much stranger kind of recitation, a whole series of recitations, in fact, was given by a very young Florentine girl called Maria di Santi. Um, she went around various cities of, uh, well, of Tuscany, but also of northern Italy, reciting poems to um, rulers, to high-ranking members of the clergy, um, there's one example, and, and then they were printed subsequently in little leaflets. Here's one, uh, 
and you can see the title page on the, on, on the left gives her age as Anisei in Chirka, around six years old. There's a nice uh, picture of her holding a little book which perhaps suggests she didn't perform from memory. And then there's a, a sonnet in her voice which claims that her audience included uh, Christian Arab and Persian princes, no less. Maybe some slight exaggeration there. This kind of performance um, certainly went on into the 18th century. Just take one, one more example. This is the, well, he's most famous as a tragedian, Alfieri, who talks about how he read uh, drafts of his verse tragedies in salons. Uh, and he said, he writes about how he was very used to getting the praise, the praise of the lip on these occasions. Um, so he, he says he, it was a very good test for whether his tra tragedies would work on the stage because he, he says the audiences were made up of a combination of men and women, of the lettered and the unlettered, of people open to different emotions and of louts. I, I knew both men and fine society too well to trust or believe foolishly in that lip service praise. He talks about le, le lodi del labro, praises of the lip, um, that is hardly ever denied to an author who is reading. But I paid great attention to and appreciated the praise and criticism that I would call, in opposition to lip service, that of the posterior if it were not a vulgar expression. He talks about le, il biasimo, le lode il biasimo del sedere. So did people walk out of the room? Did they get fidgety, basically? And that, so he, he liked to read his um, uh, works aloud in, in order to judge, to gauge the re audience's reaction. It's actually very like that, the story about Bernardo Tasso and the courtiers walking out of the room. And there are other instances from this period of uh, people reading aloud in, during dinners, in uh, reading their poetry aloud in salons. Well, to conclude briefly, um, <coughs> what, why does all this matter? <laughs> why do we need to be aware of the potential and actual oralization? Why did it matter then? Why does it matter now? Well, I, I do think as regards now, we do need, if we're going to have an accurate picture of the way in which text circulated, we do need to be aware of the fact that um, audiences could encounter text orally in speech or in song, uh, as well as in the written word. And we need to see how this oral transmission correlates with written translation when it, when it did correlate. I think we also need to be uh, aware of something that book historians really have insisted uh, uh, about um, quite a lot in recent years. We could have the last slide. Thanks. Uh, this is the idea that form creates meaning, and it's put, for example, in this quotation by the French book historian Roger Chartier. He's writing about the way, he's talking about what he calls the actualization of text. So a text is never abstract. It's always embodied in some way 
whether it's in a written form or in some kind of oral performance. Uh, and he talks about the, the fact that forms produce meaning. Now, clearly, that, that, that's very important for uh, oral text because oral performances have all sorts of ways in which meaning can be added um, to the word. Well, first of all, the text can vary more in oral performance than they, um, you know, there can be impromptu, impromptu variations. And then you've got gestures, the, the voice of the speaker or the speakers or the singer or singers, um, all kinds of um, non-verbal factors that are added by the voice. One must also, I think, take account of the social situation that I referred to at the beginning. Uh, if one is part of a group of listeners, one may be aware of the reactions of other people around one. One may also feel that hearing a performance with others makes one belong somehow to that body of people. Walter Ong argued that oral communication unites people in groups. So all of this still applies to the modern performances by Roberto Benigni and others that I mentioned at the start. But in early modern Italy, most people of all classes would have experienced listening to literature um, with some regularity. Literature oralised in one way or another um, would have permeated and shaped both their individual and their social lives to a much greater extent than is the case with us today. 